Hope you're having a great day, church family. My day's been rather wild. Someone said, Pastor, you're in shorts. And I said, well, when you have days where you got to go make emergency dentist visits to find out the damage of why your head's killing you, uh, that's what happens. That was what today was, and compounded by the fact that I hadn't found a dentist yet since moving here. So I had to go find a dentist today to go tell me that I got two teeth that have decided to apostate and follow Satan. And... Uh, <laughs> Less because of the pain they're calling, ca- uh, causing me than the uh, pain they're going to cause my wallet momentarily. Um, but glad you're here. It's a great day to be here. And here's what I would like to do as we pray before we come to the Word uh, this evening. I would like, uh, I'm just going to give you a few moments to pray around your table. And here's, here's what I'd like you to pray, uh, pray for tonight. Uh, you hear me use the term, we want to pray that God would bring revival in our church. Firmly believe that we, we mistake it when we think revival is a bunch of lost people coming to faith in Christ. Revival by nature is to revive something that's already alive. Lost person's not already alive. They need awakening, salvation. We need revival. So when I say we need revival in our church, here's, here's specifically a way to pray for that tonight, and it'll, it'll tie into what we look at here momentarily. I, I want us to pray, and maybe part of that prayer is petition, maybe part of that prayer is is just expressing the surrender that we as a church, which means every one of us as individuals who are members of this church, uh, and we've got to be this way in our own personal hearts if we're going to be this way corporately, uh, that, that we would be willing to risk whatever God asks us to risk for the sake of whatever God wants to do in and through us. That we would hold nothing closely but Christ, that we would love Him truly and deeply. And whatever He would demand or ask of us, so that His will would be done both in us and through us, that we would get out of the way and get on our knees. So, uh, if you just pray, uh, pray around your table here uh, for a few moments, and then I will, uh, I will pray us into, as we, as we look at uh, the fourth journey of Paul, Paul's journey to Rome tonight. So, let's pray.
Father, we bow, and I, I hope that when we bow and we pray, Lord, that we do it with, a, with absolute desperation. You are our only hope. And that we do it with absolute confidence. Because we're your sons and daughters. So Lord, as we open up your word tonight, open our eyes. God, truly, in each one of our lives, wherever there would be an aspect of our life, um, that we would guard and protect and shield off from your will. Lord, may we willingly tear those walls down and yield any and every area of our life to you, to your lordship, to your will. Father, when it comes to us as a church, may there be nothing that we hold dear other than you at your word. And may there be nothing that we're not willing to risk, to give, to lay down, to walk with you step by step. To be found as a church prostrated in worship at your feet because we've taken you at your word we've trusted you at your word we've followed you at your direction and not found 10 or 20 feet away thinking we were following you Jesus we look to you and it's in your name I pray amen Okay, we have been walking through the New Testament, and I am pretty positive we are going to finish this overview of the New Testament next week. Fairly positive. Which is brilliant timing, because then it's spring break for some, for others, it's life as usual, thank you. There you go. Hey, we are picking up. So we finished last week, we finished a walking through Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, this missionary journey will take him uh, likely around five years. It's going to be in this time during this missionary journey. He'll spend three years at Ephesus, which is uh, outside of his early ministry uh, down here. It's, it's the longest he stays at any spot uh, in, in his missionary journeys. He's going to end this time, who you will see that he writes the letters to First and Second Corinthians, the letters to Romans. And interestingly, in that letter to Romans, he says there that he has never, he, he, did, not, he did not have anything to do with the founding of the church at Rome, which is also fascinating. The founding of the church at Rome, neither Peter nor Paul have anything to do with it. Founding, the, the Roman church was there before either one of them got there. I simply say that of reference because the modern-day Roman church, which we know historically is the Roman Catholic Church, lays everything about the prominence of the Roman church at the feet of Peter, and the Roman church was started way before Peter ever got there. We'll come back around to that. But, but he writes that Roman church, and he says, I want, I've, I've heard of you, I know of you, I've, I'm writing this letter to you, and I want to come and engage in ministry there in Rome with you, Rome being the epicenter that is the capital of the ancient world, the epicenter of everything. 
So Paul writes that during this third missionary journey. He's going to make his way back here. Now, if you remember, as he starts to make his way back to Jerusalem, there's several passages in Acts where it says that the Holy Spirit was testifying to Paul that if he goes back to Jerusalem, he will suffer at the hands of the Jews. Paul knows this. When he gets to Ephesus, he and the Ephesian pastors, the Ephesian elders, they have this tearful time of prayer where they acknowledge this may be the last time they see him. When, he's, uh, when he is there in uh, Miletus, uh, in, in chapter 21 is where we're about to pick up. We're going to pick up in verse 15, but where he's there in Miletus, chapter 21, Verse 11, coming to us, this, this prophet named Agabus took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands. So he's I mean, it's quite crazy language. He comes up to Paul, takes his belt and ties him up like a, like a roped calf. And he says, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we, as well as the local residents, begged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. And so from that moment, it says this, after these days, we get ready and started on our way to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking Manasin of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren, that's the church, received us gladly. And the following day, James went in with us to, uh, Paul went in with us to James. Remember, that's James, the half-brother of Jesus, the writer of the letter of James, which we've been walking through and we're going to finish this Sunday. Uh, that's James. Uh, all the other elders, the other local pastors there in Jerusalem. And after Paul greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now remember, it's been years since he's seen these people. He's gone on this, this journey and he's telling, let me tell you firsthand of what I'm seeing, the churches that have started, the ways that people have believed, the, the movements of God. And, and here's what it says, when they heard it, they began glorifying God. Their response was this response of praise. Look, the gospel is going out. It's going out into the Gentile world. People are responding and, 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 and turning to Christ and coming. But then they say this, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you're teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Basically saying, there's a bunch of Jews you've hacked off. And they're going to hear, you're here. What are we going to do about it? So they come up with this plan. Paul's going to go up with a couple men. And I'm going to uh, summarize a little bit here. He's going to go up to uh, the temple. He's going to go through the rites of, uh, of purification there. He's, he's going to walk through it. And look in verse 27. When seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple... Now, catch that's clear. The Jews from Asia. So you've got Jews who are from this region, this yellow region. Notice Asia. This is going to include. Uh, this is going to include Laodicea, Hierapolis, Ephesus, Pergamum. Uh, you're going to have Miletus. Uh, all this area. Likely, you're going to have some uh, some overflow from Antioch and Poseidon. Uh, so these are going to be some areas where you're going to have some what what we've already seen in in the Book of Acts 
harsh opposition. Well, some of these Jews are down there and they recognize that's Paul. And they say, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. You remember the temple? You got the court of the Gentiles. Paul would have been in the court of the men, Gentile men, uh, and women could not go in there, which, is, which they had, and it says in verse 29, it says, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed. So they, they made this assumption that Paul's brought him in there. It's not actually true. And then it says this, the whole city was provoked. The people rushed together and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple. Immediately the doors were shut. They were seeking to kill him. And a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. So at once he took some soldiers and centurions, they ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And the commander came up, took hold of him, ordered him to be bound with chains, and he began asking, what has this man done? But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and another, and when he couldn't find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered them to be, him to be, Paul to be brought to the barracks. So here's, here's this situation. These Jews from Asia see Paul... And they launched the riot rallying cry for the, for the mob. And the Jews come and they just start beating the tar out of Paul and taking him out. And it is such an uproar. I mean, you catch the language. The whole, it's not, hey, there's a scuffle down at the temple. The whole city's up in arms. And so you've already got amongst the Jewish people a zealot movement that um, is about 13 years away from bringing absolute ruin and destruction upon uh, upon Jerusalem, they've, you've already got, in fact, they, they mentioned, uh, the commander mentions later asking Paul, trying to figure out who Paul is. Hey, are you the one who took some, took some assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul's like, nope, not me. You have this chaos and, and, and the Jewish soldiers rush down there and you catch the deal. They, the, the people start beating Paul once the soldiers show up, but it is so loud and, and, and such a ruckus that the soldiers can't get an answer. They don't know who he is. They don't know what he's done. So they pull him back to the barracks for safekeeping. And so Paul, once they pull him back, he says, I'm a Jew of Tarshish and Cilicia, a citizen, a citizen of no insignificant city. I beg you, let me speak to my people. So the soldiers give him permission. Paul stands on the stairs motions to the people with his hand, and there was a great hush. Then he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, meaning in the Hebrew language. And when it says in verse 2 of 22, when, it, when they heard he was addressing them in Hebrew, they became even more quiet. And this is the first of three different times, uh, sorry, four different times in the next several chapters that Paul is going to recount a good chunk of his testimony, attempting to drive home the fact that he is not guilty of some crime punishable by death, but he is, he's not just a Jew, but go back to that resume. He's a Jew of Jews. He's a Pharisee. He's, he's come through all this. There's, there's nobody more qualified to be able to go through the law and say, let me show you Jesus is the Christ. We, so he's going to go through and do this. Of course, the Jews, it's going to just hack them off. Uh, and there's, and by the way, I'm, I'm gonna, we're not going to dive deep into his testimonies. I'd encourage you sometime, if you've never spent much time reading, it's in some of these latter testimonies, you get other little nuggets of Paul's testimony you don't get prior in the book of Acts or in other letters. So there's some really interesting stuff there. But for the sake of, of moving us where we need to move tonight, uh, we're just going to summarize it. And um, 
When he talked about God sent Jesus sent him to the Gentiles, they verse 22, they raise up their voices away with such a person. They throw and and so it says the commander ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting at him. So here's what they're going to do. They're about to tie Paul up. They're about to take that that cat of nine tails leather whip that's designed to rip flesh off. They're about to string him up and start start be, uh, whipping the, the mess out of him until he confesses this is who he is and what he's done. Then Paul, you remember when Jesus tells the disciples, be shrewd as serpents? Here's a great example of being shrewd as a serpent. Paul said to the centurion, so here's, here's the centurion tying him up. Paul says, hey, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Because it would be a major violation, a flagrant violation of Roman law. And the centurion immediately went to the commander and the kid said, what are you about to do? This man's a Roman. The commander came and said, tell me, are you a Roman? And Paul said, yes. The citizen, and the commander said, well, I, I bought my citizenship. And Paul said, I was born a citizen. Therefore, those who are about to examine him immediately let go of him. And the commander was afraid because he found out Paul was a Roman. He'd put him in chains. The next day, wishing to know for certain why he'd been accused from the Jews, the commander released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble. So here's what happens in chapter 23. The council is the, the Sanhedrin, the same group, that same council, a representative body that just shy of 30 years earlier would have met and, and condemned in a sham trial Jesus Christ to be put to death. Now as you see them meeting again, and this time Paul's on trial, and Paul again is going to share some things. And when he sees that when he recognized that there is some uh, political partisanship in the room, because you've got the Pharisees, you've got the Sadducees, and one of the clear distinctions between the two is the Pharisees believe in a little literal resurrection. The Pharisees believe in supernatural miracles. The Sadducees do not. And so Paul, I'm on trial because I've preached the resurrection. And then all of a sudden you got some Pharisees who are hacked off in the sat and they're screaming at each other and it turns into just a chaos fest. And they take him in and it breaks out into a massive fight. So the troops have to go in and by force bring Paul out. So here's Paul. Put yourself in his shoes. Here's Paul. The Holy Spirit's told him, you go to Jerusalem, you're going to suffer. Paul's going. He gets there. He's, he's been beaten to a pulp by a mob. He's almost been whipped to a tarp by the Romans. He's now back on trial, essentially for the second time here in, in a matter of days. Things come to blows. They've got to pull him out. And I want you to see verse 11. But on, on the night, so Acts 23, 11, on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, take courage, for as you have witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. It's interesting because there is a major emphasis in the New Testament on the fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. As the great high priest, as the high priest never sits down because the work is never done. So for Jesus as the great high priest to sit down, it's because the work of redemption is done. There's nothing more to do to pay for our sin. It's, it's finished. Jesus drank the cup of wrath. Jesus drank eternal hell in full on our behalf. 
Uh, He's seated at the right hand, the place of honor, of power. He's the one who has been glorified above all things in recognition of who he is, not not because he earned it, but because he he already is it. He already deserves it. It's a recognition. But there's a few key spots where Jesus is seen standing, and all of them are connected to individuals who are suffering for the cause of Christ. Stephen, being stoned, looks in heaven and sees what? Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Paul says the Lord stood by his side. Here's Paul. He's been cut off from all his friends. Who knows where this is going to go? Obviously, there's a precedent of murderous, riotous activity towards those. Uh, the one Paul is preaching fell under the same, the same assault. Yet the Lord stood with him. There are going to be times, and we'll come back to this uh, here at the, at the very, very end tonight. There are going to be times where you and I are called by God to stand as his witness in hostile circumstances. And there's going to be times you and I are called by God to stand as his witness in hostile circumstances, and from a physical standpoint, we will be alone. There will not be other believers around us. There will not be other people to, to, to lean on. But there is never a time we are alone. Jesus stands with his people when they are put through suffering to provide witness for Him. And we better be clear and confident about that as believers. There is a comfort and encouragement, a power empowering that comes from knowing that reality. But Jesus doesn't just say you're going to be my witness. He says you've got to go to Rome. You've got to go to Rome. So the rest of chapter 23, there's two things that are going to happen. The next day, there's going to be a group of Jews who come up with a plan to lie in ambush and kill Paul. Paul's nephew is going to get word of this plan. He's going to take news of the plan to the commander of the barracks. The commander of the barracks is going to go, okay, it's not safe for us to keep Paul here in Jerusalem. We got to get him up here. Oops, let me get to the right slide here. We got to get him from Jerusalem up here to Caesarea, Caesarea Maritime we got to get them up there. And so they come up with this. I mean, this is like something out of an espionage movie. They come up with a whole flight by night. They get Paul out. They get Paul up to, up to Caesarea Philippi, or sorry, Caesarea uh, Maritime. They get him up there and they send him to Governor Felix. Then you get to chapter 24. After five days, the high priest came down. Uh, so they come down, they come up, and, and the high priest is going to get before Felix and he's going to say, hey, we, uh, um, that I may not wear you any further. I beg you, grant us by your kindness a brief meeting. We found this man, I love this, 24 verse 5. We have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among the Jews throughout the world, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple. We want to judge him according to our own law. And so it goes up, they want to get, they want to get Felix to give, give, Paul back so they can put him, try him and put him to death. And Felix is going to come back 
Oh, sorry. The governor, uh, Paul's allowed to address his accusers, so Paul's going to come in, and Paul's going to give another defense via his, via his um, testimony. Ultimately say, hey, y'all, the reason y'all got mad was because I said I stood for the resurrection. Felix, verse 22, having a more exact knowledge about the way. The way would be the earliest term. I didn't call it Christianity, but the way. Put them off, and he said, Ah, when, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I'll decide your case. He gave orders for the centurion for him to be kept. This is for Paul to be kept in custody, but to have some freedoms and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. So now Paul's allowed to have some of his companions, some of, some of the, 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 the brothers, especially some of the brothers in Christ that traveled with him to come and minister. It says, Days later, Felix, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess. They sent for Paul. They heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as Paul was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present. When I find time, I'll send you. He says, Felix's heart's getting convicted, and he's starting to feel uncomfortable, and he says, take him away for now. I'll call you back. And then it says in verse 26, at the same time, too, Felix was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. So Felix is like, ah, I'll just get Paul to, to buy himself out, which Paul doesn't do. Now, I don't know if Paul possessed the means to do it or not. What's clear is Paul didn't do it. He either couldn't do it, or even if he could do it, he didn't do it. But it's interesting. Therefore, Felix also used to send for Paul quite often and converse with him. It's fascinating. Doesn't say that Felix came to know Christ, but Felix, he, 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 they would call for him and have conversations. But look at this. After two years had passed, Felix was, was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. So here's the reality. Paul goes down here, has a couple crazy days in Jerusalem, has a joyous reception by the church, has some, has some horrible days at the hands of the Jews. He's, he has snuck out and gotten to Caesarea Maritime. He has given a defense. God's Jesus has stood, is, is standing with him, has told him, you've got to go to Rome to testify to me. And now two years have gone by. Two years where he's been under custody, he is allowed some fellowship with other believers, but two years. And where we're about to get to is going to be another year. And I simply, I, I emphasize the two years because there are going to be times that Jesus also prompts you and leads you and lays something of his will on your heart. And most of us, if you're anything like me, and I assume that the way I'm wired in this is probably just more common for human. Oh, I feel like this is something God wants me to do. Therefore, it must happen tomorrow. There are many things that God has planned in your life, and I realize some of you are going, but Wes, we've we're got several decades on you. That's great. There's things God wants to do with your life that it may take a few more years before it happens. God didn't care what age you are. If he's got stuff he wants to do through your life, he's got stuff he wants to do through your life. And sometimes there may be something he wants to do through your life that you and I are anticipating happens in the next week or so, and it may not be for another three years or so, because that's what he's doing with Paul. And we do well to remember and not give up. It's the same thing about there may be something God lays on your heart to be praying for. Now, this is where we've got to be clear, and I made mention of it Sunday. If it's not something God has specifically revealed as His will in Scripture, you need to always have open hands as you pray about it because you and I are totally capable of mishearing and thinking that what we think is God's will is God's will, and really we're just obsessed with something we don't realize we're whatever down the line. But there may be something God's laid on your heart to pray for. And it may really be God who's laid it on your heart to pray for. But it may be years before the fruit of that prayer is ever seen. 
And we can't cower back. We can't go. I mean, you can imagine, Paul, man, I must have misheard Jesus. Jesus doesn't want me to go to Rome. No. Paul's being faithful. We've got to be faithful even when there are time discrepancies for us. And so Paul's going to give a defense before Festus. And in this defense, Festus wants to gain favor with the Jews. So he tells Paul, I don't see that you've done anything wrong, but so are you willing to go back to Jerusalem and stand trial? And Paul says, if you're not going to acquit me, then I appeal to Caesar. Paul is a Roman citizen, like any other Roman citizen, had the right to appeal any case he was tied up directly to Caesar. And Paul knows it's going to do two things. It's going to take him away from Jerusalem where the Jews are plotting to kill him. They're not going to give him any kind of trial. Two, that's now the means that God is going to use to take him to Rome, which is where two years prior, Jesus has told Paul, this is where I want you to go. And so Paul's going to get before uh, Agrippa. Agrippa's going to come in and... Uh, Agrippa is going to make this statement. Paul's going to give his defense in chapter 26. And look at the end of chapter 26. King Agrippa stood up with the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with him. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, This man is not doing anything worthy of death or or imprisonment. He is guiltless. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. You can process that in a lot of different ways. Did Paul know he could potentially had his freedom? But he was more committed to doing what the Lord wanted in his life, even at the cost of great personal freedom than he was having his own freedom? It's possible. We know that that dictated Paul's life. Paul didn't view his life as something to be lived for his own pleasure or his own will or his own plan, but only to be used by the Lord. Chapter 27 is going to pick up, and you're going to notice something. When it was decided that we would sell for Italy... They proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And chapter 27 is going to chronicle their journey from all these red lines, from, from Caesarea Maritime. They're going to come up to Sidon. They're going to sell over here to Mira. Then they're going to get over here to the Isle of Crete and go around. They're going to get lost in here at a storm. They're going to get shipwrecked at Malta. They're going to spend three months in the winter. They're going to ultimately get up here. It's, it's going to take the better part of a year for them to get to Rome. Because there are several places, they stay, they stay three months, they anchor this winter. Again, I'm not saying it took a year, but it's, don't think that this journey took them two weeks or a month. It, it, it took a good chunk of the year for them, to, uh, for them to get all the way to Rome. In that time, in that time they're going to face being shipwrecked. And Paul, you're going to see Paul witnessing. He says, this very night, an angel of God whom said me, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted to you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God. It will turn out exactly as I've been told. And Then you're going to get chapter 28, verse 11. At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship, which had wintered in the islands. Verse 20, uh, 
Verse 26, when we, when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. Now here's what's interesting. As you read through there, I, I, I told you, did you notice the we? It's because Luke's with him. Which just simply put is a thought to put in our minds. To what level will we go to to encourage and love each other in Christ? Luke could have meant, man, this is, this is going to be tough on Paul. I got a promising physician, you know, physician practice back over here, and I go over there. Now, don't misapply. I'm not saying if your best friend in the church is going to have to move somewhere for three years that this is God's way of saying you got to move there for three. But I am saying we live in a highly individualistic society where we are all ruled and plagued by busyness. And in our busyness, it's easy to overlook each other, and it's easy to miss the moments where it's going to cost me something to go care for you. We can never become, as Christians, a people who are unwilling to be costed, that's not the right language, to sacrifice something to go care for each other. Paul didn't make that journey to Rome alone. At least Luke was with him to encourage him, to spur him on, to take care of him. Paul's going to get to Rome. We know at the end of Acts, or the end of Acts it's going to say that he was under house arrest in that house, but he was allowed to have people come and go. Paul's not allowed to leave the house. How did he get his groceries? Well, at least initially, he had people like Luke to help take care of him, to support him, to uphold him. We have to be a church that takes care of each other in the same way. It says in Galatians, do not tire Grow tired of doing good, for in due time you will reap what you sow. And it says in there, do not, and, it says, and it says in that, it says, especially to the household of faith. We should never grow tired of doing good in the, amongst the lost in the world. But it's interesting, Scripture says, but especially the local church. But especially the global church. You will know, they will know you are my followers by the way you love, the way you care for each other. So it's interesting when you see that we, that it comes to be there. Now, Paul's going to do something interesting that last part of chapter 28. He's going to call the local Jewish leaders. He's, again, shrewd as a serpent. Has news already gotten there from Jerusalem? He's going to call the local Jewish leaders together. He's going to tell them what he did, and they're going to go, well, we hadn't heard anything from Jerusalem. It doesn't sound like you did anything that bad. But you're talking about this, this sect, the Nazarenes. You're talking about this, this group, the way. We, we've just heard nothing but bad stuff, so tell us about it. And Paul's going to go on, and it's going to say that Paul, when they said a day for Paul, they came to his lodging, and he testified about the kingdom of God, trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they, be, they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. And so here you have Paul faithfully, and it says this, and he rented verse 32 years in his own rented corners and welcomed all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God, teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. This is what we consider Paul's imprisonment and, and house arrest. By the way, here is a reconstruction of, of um, Caesarea Maritime. I don't know that I really think that's the best reconstruction I've seen, but it's, it's what I found visually Here's Rome in Paul's day. This is where Rome is. Uh, what else do I have in here? Uh, that's 
supposedly a Roman prison, uh, but we'll, uh, we'll come back to that. That's different, not, not the house arrest. So he's got this prison. Now, in this time, just so we all understand where stuff falls, it's in this imprisonment that Paul's going to write what we call the prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. These four books are going to be written while Paul is in prison. Now, you heard he's been in prison two years, so start to add all of this together. About four and a half years ago, Paul was journeying back to Jerusalem, and here's been this four and a half year journey by the time you get to him writing Philippians, where he talks about the joy and honor it is to suffer for Christ. Where he talks about being unified and how encouraging and a blessing they are. It's going to be from prison that he writes the epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, some will debate, is that to the direct church in Ephesus, or is it to kind of a, uh, some will say it's actually to the church in Laodicea, which is right near Ephesus, uh, because Paul technically in the, man, if you read the book of Ephesians, he doesn't ever say Ephesus. <laughs> he doesn't, but most, most of church history has understood that he wrote it to the Ephesians. Ephesians, you're going to see Paul's pattern in the book of how he writes it. The first three chapters, doctrine. The last three chapter, chapters, application of that doctrine which means you can't ever separate. When we talk about the truth, you cannot separate. Well, pastor, just tell me what to do. Well, sometimes we need to be told what to do, but sometimes you and I aren't going to know how to do what we're supposed to do if we don't have a clue what we're supposed to actually believe. So Paul says, here's what you believe. Now here's how it impacts how you live. This is the foundation for it. He writes Ephesians, Ephesians, uh, I'm not for the sake of time going to summarize each letter, but Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Now Philemon is interesting. Philemon is one of the most personal letters Paul writes. There, there has been a slave of Philemon. Philemon's a Christian man. There's a slave, Onesimus, who's run away. And in the course of his running away, has come to faith in Christ. And he and Paul have linked courses in, in uh, Rome. And Paul's going to send him back to Philemon. But the nature of, of Philemon's letter is, hey, Philemon, welcome him back. And because of what you understand in the gospel of Christ, free him. Which gives you a little bit of insight into the reality was in the first century world, slavery was a real thing. Paul obviously addresses it. There are followers of Christ, he writes, that are slaves. And he tells them, if you're going to follow Jesus and, 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 and your lot in life is a slave, you're not to try to kill your masters, you're to honor your masters, even if they're horrible. But the flip side, far from defending, Paul never defended slavery. He just addressed how someone has to live in it. Far from that, what Philemon exposes is there was an understanding in Paul's mind and in the early church's mind that if you were really transformed by the gospel in Jesus Christ, there is no more male or female, slave nor free, Greek nor Jew, that all these distinctions that allowed some people to have privileges of position and other people pushed into places of oppression in, in first century society, we're all equal. We're all the same level of sinner bowing before Jesus, needing to be completely covered in the blood of Jesus. And if you really understand that and the Holy Spirit of God is transforming you with it, then you can't look at another human being and say you're property. The gospel obliterates slavery in every form, shape, and fashion, and Philemon exposes that. Paul's going to be released. Now, here's, here's where, to finish out Paul's life and how it impacts his other epistles, here's where it gets a little tricky. Some will say 
It ends in Rome. We don't know how it ends. It just says for two years he was there. And some, some will argue and say, well, and then at the end of that, he dies in Rome. Nero kills him. He's beheaded. The, the problem with that is that's, that's not really what seems to add up with, go read Philippians, which is written towards the end of that two years. He, he indicates in Philippians that he's about to be released. In addition, when we know that kind of prison he's in, and he's, he, when he's in prison about to get killed, he's not under house arrest. So what most everybody, what is generally widely ex- expected is the end of Acts here. Remember, the end of Acts, this is the end of kind of your descriptive history narrative in the New Testament. The rest of the New Testament is epistles. Paul is going to get out of prison and there's a couple theories. Some say that he went back and spent several more years ministering back here. Some will say he went back here and maybe cut up towards Serbia, uh, Slovenia, uh, some of the, the Baltic. Um, those are the Baltic countries, correct? No, the Baltics are up by, that's Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Um, what's the term for, what was the old term for those? I'm, it doesn't matter. It's a waste of time. Uh, what'd you say? The East Soviet bloc? Is that what you said? Oh, Eastern Europe. Yeah. Some of, some of the, some of the countries in here, uh, others will also hold that Paul expresses to the Romans, not only does he want to get to Rome, but he wants to get all the way to Spain. And so it's in this time that many think that he got out and he did some here and he probably made it all the way out to Spain. by the way, uh, the end of his imprisonment here would be sometime around, um, be sometime around 61 AD. We know that Paul dies sometime in the mid-60s, like AD 64 to 66, somewhere in there under the Neronian persecution, the persecution that Nero will launch on the church. So it's possible. We don't know. Um, we don't know for sure where he made it to or where he didn't make it to. Uh, I tend, to, I, I want to believe, if you just say, well, pastor, what's your opinion? I want to believe he made it all the way out to Spain. Because that seemed to be his desire. And there's an interesting little thing. Uh, Old Testament is clear that the gospel of Jesus would get to the coastlands, to the ends of the earth. The beginning of the book of Acts talks about, Jesus says, I'm sending you as my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Well, in the Old Testament, uh, full well knowing that the ends of the earth isn't just this place, but this place in the Old Testament was representative of the ends of the earth. It's the place Tarshish. Where does Jonah want to run? Tarshish. Why? It's the ends of the earth. It's the farthest place you can get to. It's on the coast of uh, Spain, Portugal. Well, if Paul made it to Spain, then quite literally the narrative of Paul as the apostle of the Gentiles is God taking the gospel all the way to Old Testament worldview, the ends of the earth. So I, I would love to think that Paul made it to Spain. Again, we don't know for sure, but here's what we do know. In this free period, so if you got his first imprisonment, then you got a free period for a couple years. In that free period, we do know he wrote two of the three, what we call the pastoral epistles. We call them the pastoral epistles because they're, uh, they're very much pastoral and how they, they, that's where you find the qualifications for deacons and pastors. It talks about order and structure in church, what, what roles are reserved for different people and, and, and different orders and stuff. He writes two of them. That'd be the letter to 1 Timothy and the letter to Titus. First Timothy, of course, we know Timothy is Paul's son in the ministry. Timothy has been left at Ephesus to help ship shape the church in order and pastor the church. He's, he's younger than a lot of the congregation. And Paul writes him with instruction. I don't look down on your youth, set the example. He writes him with instruction. These are the qualifications for, uh, for pastors, for, 
for elders. The pastoral epistles, there's a lot of stuff that's hot topic in church work today because the pastoral epistles argue that those two offices in, uh, in the church are reserved, uh, are reserved for those who are uh, men in the church, and that's, uh, that's all sorts of stuff today. You find the pastoral epistles. Um, you find in Titus, Titus is going to present a picture in Titus chapter 2 of, of what we have to strive for as a church. Older women, be mature in the faith and disciple the younger women. Older men, be mature in the faith and disciple younger men. This multi-generational congregation where those who are older in Christ are, 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 are discipling and investing in and, and, and modeling and training those who are younger in Christ, women with women, men with men, to be exactly who and what God wants them to be. That is how God intends for the church to operate. So just for the side note, when we as churches operate in ways where it's impossible for the older people and the younger people to ever mix and know each other, we are denying the order of church that God outlined in Titus chapter 2. Yet we think God's going to bless the church. Titus chapter 3, beautiful picture of, of, of what salvation is. Um, by the washing and renewing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful picture. Those two are written in the free period. When you get to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy, when you read 2 Timothy, it's very clear because Paul in 2 Timothy saying, I know the time of my departure has come. Philippians, I know I'm going to get out. Feel pretty confident. Titus, or 2 Timothy, Timothy, I know the time of my departure has come. And Paul again says, there was no one, everybody's abandoned me. I want you to come. Everybody's abandoned me. I was all alone at my trial, but Jesus stood with me to make me bold to speak the word of truth before the most powerful men in the world who hated him for what he was preaching. It's in there in 2 Timothy. He talks about Timothy. God didn't give you a spirit of fear, but power and love and a sound mind. So don't you dare refuse to, don't you dare shrink back in the use of the spiritual gifting God's given you. It's in 2 Timothy. He says, Timothy, be aware as we get closer to the end, people are going to be lovers of self. And what they're going to do, people inside the church, they're going to try to find people to preach to them to make them feel good instead of to preach them what the word actually says. And that's when he says, but you, you commit yourself to the scriptures, which you've known from childhood, for all scripture is God-breathed. He's going to say in there, he's going to say, you commit yourself, be ready in season or out of season, which doesn't mean be ready when you're ready and be ready when you're unexpected. It means be ready when there's fruit produced and be ready when it's dry and there's no fruit produced and it's just hard labor. It's a farm analogy. You be faithful at all times. And he's going to write, and if you read 2 Timothy, there is such a warm and rich sense of love for his son in the faith. Of course, it's going to be in there that he's going to make the statement too. If you remember back last week, before that second missionary journey, he and Barnabas have this massive falling out over John Mark because John Mark chickened out on the first missionary journey. You get to 2 Timothy at the end of his life, he said, hey, make sure to send John Mark to me because he's good for my soul. There's been a reconciliation that's taken place. We don't know the details of it. It's not recorded in Scripture, but we know the end result of it. It says, The Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through, the, through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. And I love this because you realize God didn't rescue Paul from execution. He didn't. So what does Paul mean? The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. 
I don't know how they're going to kill me. might hurt real bad. But my Jesus is going to bring me safely home. I don't have to be worried about stepping on that airplane. I know exactly who's coming. I know exactly who's flying me. And I know exactly where we're going. And he's going to get me there safe no matter what's about to happen. And so with that, you come to the end. Uh, you know, Acts describes this theological history. You come to the end of Paul's life. That's where the letters he writes are, are filled in there. There's a little bit, a couple other letters we'll look at next week and kind of the, the rest of what happens in that first century as the New Testament is wrapping up. But just leave you, since we're right at time, just leave you with a couple simple thoughts of how to process this. One, why, why does, think about this with me, you have these missionary journeys that take all these years, all these people come into faith. And can you imagine the stories? Why in the book of Acts are seven chapters devoted to all these defenses as Paul suffers on the trial and going to Rome? I'll be honest, I don't have a full answer for you tonight, but I'll give you at least a couple simple thoughts as I prayed about it, walked through it today. One, there's a defense of the legitimacy of the gospel. Because Paul is over and over making it clear, let me tell you how I know what I'm telling you is true. That would have been huge in the first century and again is huge today. Who cares what kind of stories you got if we don't actually, if we're not really sure that convinced that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he did. Two, there's a defense of the mission of God. We're, we're seeing there is a distinct concern that we see how the gospel gets to the end point, to Rome, to the, the capital, the epicenter, the, the apex, to see how the gospel goes to, to Caesar. I mean, und undoubtedly, Nero, the same crazy emperor who put Peter and Paul to death, also heard the gospel out of their mouth because they would have had to have testified. But I also think there's something we can take from it in this way. Jesus said, my gospel's going to the ends of the earth. And those seven chapters show us that God uses very different means to accomplish his will. And sometimes those means include what looks like defeat to our eyes and what is hard and suffering to us. But God's ways are not our ways. For he is higher than our ways. His thoughts are greater than our thoughts. God has a will. God has something he wants to do. God is working for his glory, for his kingdom. He's on his mission. The question is, will we be like Paul and be attuned to his mission and yielded to it? Or will we cling tight-fisted to our version of what we want his mission and kingdom to look like? And so I just, these are the questions I wrote down even for my own. Are we, am I willing to risk, what am I willing to risk for Jesus' glory, kingdom, and mission? Am I willing to risk my favorite time slot for something? Am I willing to risk my favorite song? Am I willing to risk something that will inconvenience me, but will be of a greater convenience to make more disciples in the church? Am I willing to lay down my busyness? Am I willing to lay down what I think I ought to be leading in order to serve however Jesus actually wants me to serve and serve faithfully as whatever piece of the body God intends me to be in the life of the church? What am I willing to give time, financially, 
of my heart and soul to care for people because I got news. We're messy. We weigh a lot to take care of each other. You can't take care of each other without giving a pretty good burden. What am I, what am I willing to risk, lay down, and give? Paul said, I don't, take, I don't account of my life as anything, only that I may run the race and finish the course. The language he uses in 2 Timothy, I am now being poured out as a drink offering. And the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And church family, that's what I want in my life. That is what I am praying that you will want in your life. And that is what I hope and pray we will be as a church. That when we stand before Jesus as a church, we can do it with joy and confidence because we ran the race, we fought the fight. We kept the faith, and in the future, there is laid up for us a crown of righteousness. So this is Paul's life. Appreciate you being here. We're gonna we'll finish out the New Testament next week, and you gotta to do that. You gotta. There's a couple other things that happened in the first century. Scripture alludes to you need to know, as well as well. What happened to the rest of the apostles? All we've talked about is Paul, and we know Paul. Uh, Paul gets beheaded in the mid-60s AD, and actually that spot in Rome, if you ever go to Rome, there's a chapel built on it, and that's whatever because. It obviously doesn't look like it, but what's cool is outside of that chapel, it's outside the old Roman wall, outside of that chapel, the pathway leading up to that chapel, there's about a uh, six foot wide by probably 14, 20 foot long set of stones that are interlocked together that have like a hotel chain guard around them you're not supposed to walk on. Those are the original first century stones of the road that Paul walked the last few steps of this life on earth in before the Lord took him home. They're there. I, I, didn't, I wouldn't able all my, uh, because of laptop switching and moving and stuff like that, all my great pictures are at home, so I don't have a picture for you. I'll have to try to snag it next week, but it's there. I remember just sitting, uh, who cares about the chapel where supposedly that's built, I don't, there wasn't a chapel here when it happened, but just to stand and realize, Paul walked those steps, Breathe a couple more breaths, and the Lord took him faithful. The Lord took him safely home. But there's some other things that happened. What happened to the other apostles? Uh, where do they go? What about the other letters? Hebrews, James, First, Second, Third, John, Revelation. What about those? We'll look at that next week after the church business meeting. Let me remind you, if you're willing, please be in prayer about how to sign up for sports camp. And I forgot to say this Sunday, one of the awesome things about getting to do sports camp this summer is that it is it is six to nine in the evening, which means all of you who work can volunteer because I will tell you this for us to do this this the opportunity that sports camp presents us to reach new kids and families in this community who would never darken the doors of a church it will take the entire effort of our church to do it truly it will I'm not trying to just pastorally exaggerate to manipulate you into doing something so uh, please be prayerful how you can volunteer and be a part there is a role for everybody I promise, if you say, Pastor, what are all those roles? I'm going to say, talk to Chris Gary, who I think must have left this card so I'd remember to say something tonight because <laughs> I found it on the, the pulpit here. But love you, church family. Excited. We're going to finish out James this Sunday and time to have Lord's Supper the following week. By the way, we are six and a half weeks from Easter, so we're just moving straight along in 2023.
Uh, let me pray, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get going. Jesus, thank you for every brother and sister in this room. God, may we be a people. You are so gracious and patient. Because I'm sure every one of us, if we really start to unfold the curls of our heart, we'll find things we're not willing to risk. And you've been patient. You continue to be patient, Lord, and we're grateful for that. But God, we also, God, we want to joyfully risk whatever you would call us to risk. To give up whatever you'd call us to give up. To give whatever you'd call us to give. To be a part, Lord. The reality is when you, suffering is never fun or easy. But Jesus, Paul walked the way he walked because of a joy that was in his heart. Not just because of a duty. So Lord, may we know your joy, your love, your peace, your patience, your goodness, your kindness, your faithfulness, your gentleness, your self-control. Holy Spirit, may we walk in you. Open doors before us this week. Thank you so much for the church family that you have given us. God, and may we be faithful that when one of us gets taken by a ridiculous ship voyage to Rome, that those of us whose hearts you stir, we'd go right along for the ride to encourage and take care of them. So that this lost world would look and recognize the way we love each other is because of you. Jesus, we look to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.